Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome to the Home Maps Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors with books. With us today is Thomas Heghammer, author of The Caravan, Abdullah Azam and the Rise of Global Jihad, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Thomas, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So tell us about the origins of the book. What made you decide that Abdullah Azam would be a great uh, a topic for a book like this? Well, um, it started kind of from a puzzle, which is where does the jihadi movement come from? Why does it, uh, why is it so big now? And why wasn't it uh, there in the 50s and 60s? And um, so the book is basically a, an attempt to type, to kind of reverse engineer the birth phase of the transnational jihadi movement. We and to do that- now. We take it for granted now, but it's not obvious. That's right, that's right. In, I mean, there were militant Islamist groups in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but they were almost all focused on domestic politics, trying to topple their respective regimes. And then kind of all of a sudden, they turned to the international stage. They start traveling around the world as foreign fighters. And then, of course, in the 1990s, Al-Qaeda sort of starts a, an international terrorism campaign against the US and, and, and the West, and sort of the rest is history. But you have this kind of abrupt internationalization in the 1980s that I wanted to explain. And so what is Abdullah Azam's role in that? So Azam is, is crucial because he is the main entrepreneur behind the mobilization of the so-called Arab Afghans in the 1980s. And the Arab Afghans were basically the foreign fighters in the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And Abdullah Azam was the man who more or less brought them there. He, uh, he, um, he set up an organization called the Services Bureau uh, to streamline the recruitment uh, and the reception of foreign fighters. And he wrote several very influential books that motivated people to go. Um, and by the late 1980s, he was, without a doubt, the most famous jihadi in the world. And he also has, he exercises influence today, uh, even though he died in 1989, he's, he's still widely read by jihadis today. And um, so uh, he's, he's a very important figure in the, in the overall history of jihadism. Now, what, what's fascinating about this book is that unlike a lot of, uh, kind of more uh, mainstream political science books, this is actually a biography where you went, you spent a lot of time digging into uh, features of his background and his life, which people really hadn't explored before. Right. So I think kind of I, I took advantage of the sort of the, the fact that I kind of I had tenure and and this was my second book, so I could be a little bit more, a little bit freer in, in the format. So it's not a, a kind of classical academic book, this. Um, it's uh, structured like a biography, and we follow Azam's life from birth to grave. Um, uh, and I've, I've tried to write it sort of accessibly and engagingly, and I think when you've kind of 
get close to a, an individual like that, um, it, it makes for an entertaining read. And but it's more—it's obviously more than just a biography. I've, I've tried to make it analytical, and my aim was to sort of do two things with this book: to to write Azam's biography, but also to to write the history of the Arab Afghans. And you also have done the enormous public service of uh, posting an enormous amount of the original documents online, which is something which uh, most scholars haven't done in the past. Yeah, I, I, I believe in the importance of kind of transparency and replicability in qualitative political science. I think um, those of us who do qualitative social science have, have lagged behind the quants a little bit in 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 replicability and i've been quite inspired by uh, andrew moravchik's initiative called active citation where you kind of you, you make available all the primary sources that you cite and i've tried to do that with this book and uh, people can go to the book website azambook.net and find pretty much every single uh, primary source i cite and i cite a lot there are 3000 footnotes in this book it's really quite impressive. So let's talk about the biography a little bit. One of the things which I found really fascinating about uh, your discussion of Abdullah Azam is the way that you really take seriously the fact that he's Palestinian in origin and that this actually shapes his thinking about the jihad in some pretty fundamental ways. That's right. Um, I, I think the key to understanding why uh, Azam became this internationalist lies in his basically itinerant life the fact that he became uh stateless more or less and became this sort of vagabond because he, he was born in 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 um in palestine in, in, in near jenin uh in the early 1940s and lived through the 48 war and the and and all the rest and then in 1967 he decides to leave Palestine. He doesn't want to live under Israeli occupation and he walks on foot to Amman. And from that point onwards, he is basically a vagabond because he's, he's sort of a, um, a guest in every country uh, that he's in. And that also makes him vulnerable to expulsion and other things. And that's effectively what happens eventually in, in 1980, he gets expelled from Jordan because of his um, political activities. Uh, and I think if he hadn't been sort of a, a refugee effectively, he would, couldn't so easily have been um, expelled and he wouldn't have been this, this vagabond uh, figure. So the, the Palestinian uh, background is, is important in that regard. Of course, it's also important to kind of conceptually because I remember in the early days after the uh, after 9-11, there was a lot of uh, emphasis on the fact that Palestine was not one of the issues that global jihadists cared about. And yet reading Abdullah Azam's life, it doesn't appear that way anymore. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, it, obviously, it was very, Palestine was always very important to him. Um, he, he, in, the, in the 1980s, when he was in Afghanistan, he was often criticized uh, for having abandoned the Palestinian cause. And he always defended himself vigorously, saying, there's nothing I care more about than the liberation of, of Palestine and Jerusalem. 
but it's just not possible at this point for me, um, who, who doesn't have access to Palestinian territory, to wage jihad there. Um, and also in the late 80s, uh, he was very enthusiastic about the Palestinian Intifada, and he was in close touch with the emerging Hamas leadership there. Uh, and he wrote extensively about uh, the Palestinian issue. Um, but more, more broadly, uh, regarding the, the jihadi movement, I mean, I, I, I would say that they have always been uh, uh, preoccupied with the Palestinian issue. And if you, I think I, I wrote an op-ed about this many years ago, just going through Osama bin Laden's statements. There, mm -hmm. you know, Palestine, Palestine is all over the place. It's the, because this movement, it kind of, its lifeblood is this sort of victim narrative that the, the Muslim Ummah is under attack uh, by hostile forces uh, on the outside, and they, they, in their rhetoric, they always invoke these sort of symbols of Muslim suffering. And Palestine is one of the foremost symbols of, of Muslim suffering all through their propaganda. It's really interesting. So let, let's talk about. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, usually, when people think about the uh, the Arab role in the Afghan jihad, uh, the main thing they think about is Saudi Arabia and Bin Laden, but more broadly, Saudi support for the Mujahideen. Um, where does Abdullah Azam fit into that Saudi relationship? Right. Well, one of the uh, claims I make in the book is that the Arab Afghans were much uh, were much less uh, kind of uh, manip they were they were they were not government products. They were not uh, directed or funded by governments. They were basically self-made men. It was a it was a it was a it was a bottom-up phenomenon. There was uh, essentially a sort of a private enterprise, um, and uh, governments, be they Saudi Arabia or America or or Jordan or other states uh, didn't really affect their development that much. They were just in the background. And to the extent that they shaped the, the, the phenomenon, it was merely by tolerating them, by not putting obstacles in their way. And so Azam, he, um, he had you know, reasonably amicable relationship with the Saudi regime, but only to a point, because he was, all through his life, very skeptical of the nation states of the region. He was um, uh, basically a, a, an Ottoman caliphate uh, uh, supporter. He, 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 he was very nostalgic about the, the fall of the, about the, the Ottoman caliphate, and he wanted uh, to see the reestablishment of, of a caliphate. And he, he was critical of pretty much every government in the region. Um, but he he was uh, he was not very explicit in his criticism of the Saudi regime. Um, he, 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 um, he 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 and the part that's partly perhaps because he he re, he relied to some extent on access to Saudi to, to, to the country to, to Saudi Arabia for recruitment and fundraising and so on. So I thought it was interesting uh, that uh, uh, Bin Baz's uh, preface or endorsement of Azam's book wasn't nearly as enthusiastic as I remember it being in the way you told it. That's right. I mean, so for Azam's perhaps most famous and influential book, uh, The Defense of Muslim Lands, 
which says that all Muslims have an obligation to fight in Afghanistan. Um, in, in, to kind of to give that book more oomph, he reaches out to senior scholars to kind of sign the preface. And uh, he's very keen to get Bin Baz on board. And during Hajj in 1984, he, he, he tries very hard to get his signature on there. But, but Bin Baz um, doesn't sign in the end. He, he kind of makes a series of excuses. And you get the sense, it's, it's never said explicitly in, in the text or, or by Azam later, but you get the clear sense that Bin Baz just wanted to avoid <laughs> this guy. Um, so, and, uh, and, and that's, that was basically the, the tenure of many mainstream clerics at the time, that they were all sort of um, on the surface, you know, very supportive of the Afghan jihad. And they would say, this is a jihad and it's, it's a duty to support it. But they would not say explicitly it's a duty to fight there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, always, they often stopped short of that. And, and, and um, so Azam at the time was a marginal voice. Uh, in that regard, in that he was he was he was one of very few sort of established clerics. Bear in mind that he had he he had a PhD in in in, in, um, in uh, jurisprudence from Al Azhar University, so he was a cleric, but he was um, pretty much the only um, uh, senior cleric to hold this view that that jihad was um, an individual duty. So. Let's talk about what Azam actually did then. Tell, what is the Services Bureau and what exactly did it do that was so important in Afghanistan? Well, the, the Services Bureau uh, was actually um, not uh, sort of exclusively, exclusively geared towards recruiting foreign fighters. It, it was more of an NGO that did lots of different things. Um, logistics, uh, education, printing uh, religious textbooks for Afghans, running orphanages, things like that. But they also had this sort of facilitation function for foreign fighters. And they also uh, had magazines, uh, notably the, t- the, the famous Al-Jihad magazine, which was geared towards recruit, re- recruiting foreign fighters and and getting people to to donate money to to the afghan cause um, I love, by the way i love the way you figured out that he ghost wrote so many of those articles right that's right that's yeah that's a that's a that's a fun fact that, that in, the, in the beginning especially to make it seem like they had more contributors than they really did he he, he wrote he's, he signed several of his own articles by different pseudonyms um later on they didn't <laughs> Later on, they, they had plenty of contributors, so that wasn't the problem. But um, but yeah, sometimes when you when you start when you're a startup, you have to do things like that. <laughs> um, but um, I think sort of from a social science point of view, what the, what the what the Services Bureau did was to reduce the information problem that prospective foreign fighters had, because you can imagine. Uh, you know, if you're in a country far away and you hear about this conflict, and you kind of think, oh yeah, that's I sympathize with that cause. And you might be interested in going. You, you know, it's not obvious how to get there. You know, there are lots of barriers on the way. You know, you know there's a, you need to get a visa. You know, you need to find people to connect with. You know, you need to sort out all these sort of practical things. And 
what the Services Bureau did was basically hand all this information on a silver plate to people around the world. They were basically saying in Al Jihad magazine, you know, this is our phone number, this is how you do it. Uh, you, 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 you get a ticket, you get a visa that way, and then you go to Peshawar and you call this number and we'll come and pick you up. And so that's the kind of, they, they sort of very important sort of um, uh, role in that, in that regard. And so you can see, we can see very clearly that the flow of uh, foreign fighters, it matches almost exactly the, um, uh, the evolution of the Services Bureau. Uh, in that, uh, for, for the first four years of the war, there were hardly any foreign fighters in Afghanistan. Uh, there were you know, tens of people. And then in late 1984, Azam establishes the Services Bureau uh, and from there on, it kind of starts to spike. And then sort of in, seven, in 87, 88, you kind of you, you get this sort of exponential, exponential curve. So that organization was crucial to the, to the mobilization. That's, I think it's an important insight. And it, you know, it, and it also matches, of course, the literature on sort of mm -hmm. social movements and so on. And in, in that, you know, you may have, you know, even though you have a grievance, even, even though there is a grievance, doesn't always translate into action. You need this sort of intermediary elements to operationalize and translate the grievance into into action. And that that's what the services bureau. Especially when, as you say, it, it's just really is something quite extraordinary to like get up and and go three thousand miles to a country that doesn't speak your language and get involved in fighting a war. It really takes something quite extraordinary to make people do that. That's right, and and um, and they were incredibly successful in that they they got people really from all over the world. I mean, from Australia, from California, from South Africa, from Norway, um, and this Al Jihad magazine was sold in multiple countries, in over forty countries. And you can tell on the, on the front page of the magazine, it had, at the bottom, it had the local the, the the price of the magazine in the local currency in sort of, you know, 30, 40 different countries. Uh, it's quite a change from the jihadi magazines of today, which only circulate online, of course, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of, they're super clandestine. And, you know, it's in many countries, it's illegal to even possess them. But back then, these were sold in the open, distributed widely. Um, uh, so it was a very different time. Fascinating. So this book is so rich. There's so many things that we could talk about and uh, people are just going to have uh, to, to buy the book to find them all out. Um, but let's take maybe one more thing I, maybe to finish on is something that I think a lot of people are interested in, which is the relationship between bin Laden and Abdullah Azam, which I think uh, after reading the book, I came away uh, convinced that this relationship is pretty misunderstood. So tell us about it. That's right. So. Um, um, I think the in 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 sort of the, the 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 established narrative about kind of the early history of Al Qaeda, uh, there is this sort of um, enmity between the two. That you know, it's 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 a friendship friendship that or a mentorship that kind of turns sour. And several books, you know, insinuate that Bin Laden may even have killed Azam. Um, to 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 recap, for those who are not sort of in the weeds here. Uh, you know, Bin Laden, who's sort of you know fifteen, twenty years younger than than Azam, you know, meets Azam when he's a student, um, and uh, 
um, take, follows his lectures in, when Azam lives in Saudi in, in 1980. And then a few years later, bin Laden starts going to Pakistan and, and, and then they link up again and they, and they strike up a relationship because uh, bin Laden has a lot of money uh, and Azam needs the money. So they, the two of them actually together found the, the services bureau. Um, and then, so at that point, we're now in sort of 1984, 85, they're friends and, and, and Azam probably have, has this sort of mentor role for him. And then this is where kind of, this is, this is where the established narrative says, well, then they drift apart and many suggest that bin Laden came under the influence of kind of more radical Egyptians uh, who, who kind of brainwash him and turn him against Azam, etc. Um, but in my sources, I, I don't really see that. I, I see more, I see, I do see some drifting apart. And I think that's because they were just interested in different things. Um, Azam was kind of, uh, he was a, he was a, he was an intellectual, a bookish guy at heart. So he, he, he wasn't all that into military stuff. Whereas bin Laden from 1985, he was very keen to get out in, in, in the battlefield and, and fire some rounds. So, so they just ended up doing slightly different things. But I don't see in the sources like this visceral kind of hatred or, 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 or you know, that, that might have led to an assassination. There's a lot of evidence to the contrary, actually. Um, and that, so I think they actually, they were stayed on reasonably good terms to the end. And I don't think Bin Laden killed Azam. Um, well, th this, has been, this has been really interesting. Um, if you look at this uh, now in terms of this was happening in the, in the 1980s and uh, we've come a long way since then. And, you know, a lot of your other work is focused on uh, the phenomenon of foreign fighters today. And, you know, you, you've, you've written all of this stuff on the, this global phenomenon of foreign fighters and the globalization of jihad. Would Abdullah Azam have recognized uh, the world as it is today? And would he have been happy with it? Um. I think uh, he he would have recognized it in in, in 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 because I mean many of these conflict zones like Afghanistan you know they're they're, they're age old I mean they're they're still at war so he certainly would have recognized Afghanistan. Uh, the question, of course, uh, you know that you're hinting to is sort of what would Azam have done if he had not been killed in '89? Because at the back in the background here is this. Uh, conception that many have of him as a more moderate jihadi, as someone who waged clean jihad, who just wanted people to fight in Afghanistan, you know, in conventional ways against enemies in uniform and not do this terrorism stuff that Al-Qaeda um, started doing. And so the question is, you know, did Azam have that in him or not? Or could he have perhaps regulated some of that extremism that came later and perhaps even prevented 9/11, and um, I, I address that question head on in in, in 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 the in the book. And my answer is I is that I I think that he he, he would have been quite sympathetic to Al Qaeda's project up to a point. I, um, I, and I but I don't think he would have approved of 9/11, and I certainly don't think he would have approved of uh, Islamic State and its brutality. Um, so, I think if he had lived, 
the, the movement might have um, looked, looked slightly differently. But of course, I'm speculating here. It's entirely possible that Azam also would have kind of changed attitude and, and become more radical uh, as, as well. Um, but um, he had quite a complex character and complex views. And I think, you know, readers can perhaps make up their, their own mind once they've kind of become acquainted with, with his personality in the book. Well, great. We've been speaking with uh, Thomas Haghammer. Uh, he's the author of the brand new book, The Caravan, Abdullah Azam and the Rise of Global Jihad, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on.